Amen. Hey, this morning, am I muted? This morning, we are continuing in our study uh, of the book of Esther. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 5 and verse 1. There we go. Pick up in chapter 5 and verse 1 through chapter 8 and verse 2. And so if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. And if you're not familiar with how to use it, you can find a table of contents at the front of the Bible. It's going to let you know where the book of Esther is located. The large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. This morning we're in Esther chapter 5, starting in verse 1 and going through uh, Esther 8 and 2. Esther 8 and 2. Hey, let, me, uh, let me review for us those things that happened in Esther chapter 4, just so we kind of understand the scene of all these things that have been unfolding. You'll remember that uh, in kind of in God's providence, God has, has allowed his people to be put, placed in jeopardy. And so there's a guy named Haman, and he is a bad guy, and he absolutely hates all Jews. And because he had a negative interaction with one guy, he wants all Jews everywhere, all over the kingdom of Persia, to die. And so he convinced the king to issue a decree to put to death uh, all the Jews over the entirety of the kingdom. When chapter 4 rolls around, they're kind of dealing with the fallout of that. And so it's Mordecai communicating with, with Esther via a proxy. So they're sending this guy back and forth. Hey, would you carry this message? Yes, would you carry this response? Hey, would you carry this message? Yes, would you carry this response? Well, as the way that it ends, Esther begins to kind of take charge. And she says, listen, Mordecai, you need to get every Jew within the city of Susa praying or, or, or rather fasting. And they're going to fast for three days. No food, no water, three days. This complete and total fast. While she is preparing and readying herself and readying her heart to go in and to intercede on behalf of the people to meet with the king. Which coincidentally we were told that if you were to go in there without an invitation spelled, you're dead. And so it's not just show up, hey, how are you? Can I visit with you a little bit? No, if you do that, you would die. And so that's, that's what's facing uh, Esther is she's preparing this moment and so day one rolls around no eating and no drinking day two rolls around no eating or no drinking day three rolls around and then our chapter picks up and it says and on the third day chapter five and verse one on the third day Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace and so all these things are being described for us now listen you may read this and say well things haven't really ramped up yet things haven't really got bad, bad gotten bad for esther yet she's just kind of there like outside of his bedroom i can remember being a kid and having disobeyed my parents and they didn't know i was caught yet but i was outside their door and i'm just thinking please be forgiving please be forgiving and i do like the, the phantom knock oh you're asleep i'll just tell you tomorrow and just kind of walk over there. But in this place, Esther has already violated the king's decree. She's already violated his edict. She can't be in the place where she's at. Now, it's instructive for us that how is she clothed? She's put on the royal apparel. She's got on this robe that when the king looks through and he sees her, there's no question to him, uh, this is just a woman. But when he sees her and he sees the way that she's dressed, it communicates to him, this is the queen. It's strategic. It's important, so he looks over and he sees her, he sees her across and through this corridor, and so he calls her to himself, and in verse 3 he says, what is it, listen how he refers to her, Queen Esther. Our story no longer refers to her as simply Esther, but always Queen Esther. 
Listen to this request he makes of her, or what he says to her. What is your request? It should be given to you even to half of my kingdom. So in this moment, she had walked through, he had extended the scepter to her, she had laid her hand upon it, and then he effectively threw open the gates and said, honey, what do you want? I'm going to give you anything you want. Now recognize, this is hyperbole. He doesn't really mean I'm going to give you half of my kingdom. He doesn't really mean you can have anything you want. This is just his way of kind of being overly generous in speech. He says, what do you want, even up to half my kingdom? Now, we've read the story, and we know how these things are unfolding. We know that her life is in jeopardy, that Mordecai's life is in jeopardy, that every Jew over the entire kingdom, their lives are in jeopardy, right? And so here she is before him. Here he throws open the gates of all of generosity. He says, what do you want? You can have half my kingdom. And what is her request? You got dinner plans? I mean, I thought it'd be great to have uh, a dinner party for you, and maybe if he's not busy, your buddy Haman could come with you, and, and I'll throw a dinner party. Would that be great? And you got to think the king. I've just, I've just told you you could have half of my kingdom, and you're asking me to get together for a little brioche, a little sip and see. Like, this is what you want? He says, yeah, you know, why don't you bring Haman? That would be great. If you would bring Haman, I think that would be really great. So he's beginning to pick up this idea. Haman seems to be really important to her. I wonder what's going on. So he sends somebody out and he says, quickly, go bring Haman so we can do as Esther has asked. So they're at this feast. They're eating fruit, they're eating bread, they're eating meat on large skewers, which is going to come in really handy. And so they're in the midst of this. The king stands up and he asks her again, verse 6, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half my kingdom and it shall be fulfilled she's got him she's got him twice he's made this same offer to her she has him right where she wants him now look at how strategically she puts together this request to the king then esther answered verse 7 my wish and my request is this if i have found favor in the sight of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my request and to fulfill my request. Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'll prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now she's not merely saying, this was great, let's do this again tomorrow. Look at what she says to him. If you're going to give me what I ask for. If I found favor in the sight of the king. If it pleases you to see me. And if it pleases you to grant my request and to my wish and to fulfill my request, does it make you happy to see me? And are you going to give me what I want? These are the qualifiers. And she says, if you're happy to see me and you're going to give me what I want, then come tomorrow. So listen what she's done. Effectively, she's communicated this. If you show up tomorrow, it's an indication to me. It's a promise to me. It's your honor on the line to me that you're going to give me whatever I put before you. Tomorrow I'm going to let you know what I want, but your attendance, you showing up, communicates to me that you're going to give me what I want. The king says, all right, I love a good dinner party as much as the next guy. And Haman is just over the moon excited. I mean, Haman has really kind of set his, height, his eyes on wanting to be recognized and wanting to be famous and wanting to be as close to the king as he can possibly be. And so verse 9 says, Haman went out that day joyfully glad of heart. Haman is skipping down the road. He's overcome with joy. He's humming his own song. He is so incredibly excited until 
It says, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. You remember, this was a whole inciting incident that happened previously. Haman is promoted. He walks out. Mordecai doesn't bow before him. Some guys come up and they say, listen, Haman, there seems to be a problem. We talked to Morty. He says he won't bow to you because he's a Jew. Is that a big deal? And and, and Haman is just overcome with anger. And this is what led to the edict from the king that said they all had to die. So here he is again. He's been meeting with the king. He's been hanging out with the queen. He's been eating all the best food, enjoying all the best drink. And he's gotten getting to do the same thing again tomorrow. And so he's just like, oh, my life is so great. My life is so mighty. There's nothing my life cannot do. I mean, he's just loving it. He's making up songs and lyrics about himself and prose and just all the various ways that he's awesome. He walks out and he sees a person who denies his awesomeness. He looks at Mordecai and he says, man, you're going to die in 11 months. Why are you sitting? My word, my conniving sentenced you to death in 11 months why are you not afraid so he goes home and he gathers his wife and his family and he begins to recount to them all the various details of his awesomeness look at verse 11 he gets his wife he gets his friends he says and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches you remember this guy was going to pay 10,000 talents to kill all the Jews and the king said you can keep it so Haman is filthy rich He describes to them the number of his sons. And the book tells us 10, but you can read in other places that Haman might have had as many as 280 sons. And sons stood for power. And says, this is how amazing I am. You guys know how awesome I am. How rich I am, the number of my sons, all the promotions which the king has honored me. He says, you remember when I was kind of down here, I was a mid-level paper pusher, and then I was a a mid-to-high-level paper pusher, and then I was a high-to-mid-level paper pusher, and then I was a high-level paper pusher, and now I push people who push paper. Nobody's better than me except for the king. He says, you know how awesome I am. You know how he's advanced me above all the officials and all the servants of the king. He says, listen to this, even Queen Esther, when she was throwing a dinner party for her husband, and she sat down to invite people, She says, why don't you make sure Haman can come? Let's check Haman's schedule. Let's make sure that Haman's available to come. Nobody else, just me, the king, and her. We are the happy trio. It's not awkward at all. It's not what y'all think. Listen to what he says. He says, I have more than anybody. Only the king has more than me. But verse 13, yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sit at the king's gate. Haman's whole life was wrapped up in how other people saw him. The the idol in Haman's life was this insatiable desire for his pride to be fed over and over and over again. And as we look at Haman, there's this this sense at which that you and I begin to see ourselves in the response of Haman. Now, not in the idea that we've sent an edict and a decree to kill tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people, or I hope not for the sake of the people sitting closest to you, but we recognize in, in Haman, what we see is when his pride, when his idol is assaulted, that everything is sawdust and misery. How amazing is it that he details this fascinating list of all the things that he has in life. I've got more money than anyone. I offer the king alone. I've got more promotions than anybody. No one stands in my way. When the king wanted to have a dinner party, or his wife wanted to have a dinner party, who did he invite? He invited me. But when the idol of Haman's life was assaulted, 
when Mordecai refused to bow down, everything in the world was empty. Everything in the world was empty. When we look at our lives and reflect on the various quiet idols that remain dormant, hidden in our lives, these things come to the surface when they are attacked. You may look at your life and consider, I, I don't really have any idols. I don't have anything that, that I'm uh, disproportionately given to. I don't have anything that I worship more than the Lord. And then in the course of divine providence and through a series of happy accidents, God brings somebody across your path to, to assault one of those idols. And so you look at it and you say that, that I don't really struggle with control. And then somebody comes across your life and they show you that you are now out of control. You're like, family's not an idol to me. And then something happens to your family. You would say, time's not an idol to me. And then somebody takes control of your time. You would say that all these things, pride, all these things, they're not idols to me. But what God does is he's quietly unearthing through his gracious offense through the happy accidents of others. Haman had it on full display that pride was his decided idol. But the amazing thing is that we see our God is graciously moving and stirring in our hearts, removing from us the idols that want to take the prime spot of worship in our lives, cause us to worship them, to sort our lives around them instead of worshiping him. But God in his graciousness, as we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we say, I'm so glad I'm not one of those. But he goes on and he says, of such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Our God is graciously, graciously at work putting to death the idols in our heart. And the amazing thing about our God is he's using our friends and our family and strangers to expose the idols in our hearts so that they would not take the place that he and he alone deserves to be. Amen? Tragically, Haman doesn't see it. He surrounded himself by people that only feed back into his idolatry. He surrounded himself with people that at this point in our story only want to see Haman's stock continue to climb. So they offer this solution to him. They say, listen, listen, you can take care of this. You can solve this. All you have to do is to put Mordecai to death. He says, all this is worthless to me. So his wife and his friends get together and they say, let us build a gallows 50 cubits high. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully to the king uh, to this feast. He says, this idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. And so just imagine kind of how this day went. Haman goes to a feast. It's great. He comes out. He gets angry. He goes home. He recounts how awesome he is. And then he remembers how terrible it was when Mordecai didn't bow to him. And his wife said, I know what we should do. Let's kill that unfortunate fellow right now instead of 11 months from now. And how are they going to do it? The text tells us that they're going to build this thing that's 50 cubits tall. Now let me kind of put this in, in frame of reference for you, okay? The palace itself was about 45 feet tall. So 45 feet tall for the palace. But the gallows they want to build, this, this construction that they want to set a post on top of and then impale Mordecai on top of that, is 75 feet tall. 75 feet tall. So Haman and all his industrious buddies are out there all night long whistling why they work and, oh, he's going to die in the morning, he's going to die. 
He's going to die in the morning. He's going to die. Everybody sing it with me. He's going to die. And so they're so excited about all the various ways that he's going to die. And really it's just one. But they're, so they're building this thing, and he's just so incredibly overjoyed. And as it happens at this very moment, the king can't sleep. Now, is it all the hammering and song? I don't know. But what we see in verse 1, it says, On that night the king couldn't sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Effectively, this is the scene. Ahasuerus is in there, and he can't sleep. The text tells us that sleep fled from him. So God is keeping him from being able to sleep. And so he says, uh, would you bring me the story, the one about me that has all the awesome things I've ever done? Would you bring that in and read it to me? And so they bring it in, so they're skipping over little things like losing the war in Greece. They're skipping over little things like his wife saying no. And he turns to it and he says, ha, let me read you the one about when you were almost assassinated. When Big Than and Teresh uh, sought to kill you. And so the king's listening to it and he's hearing it. He says, that's a compelling story. Tell me the awesome thing that I did for the guy that saved me. Tell me how great it was. Tell me about when we sent him to, uh, to the islands. Tell me about when we uh, gave him all these riches. Tell me about how awesome his life is now because of the good thing that he's done to me. And this is what he finds. We've done nothing. The king's young men who attended him said nothing has been done for him. And the king says, well, that can't pass. I'm awesome. i got to show him he's awesome because he saved me because of my awesomeness. So you remember this king has no original ideas of his own, so he says, who is in the court? Essentially, he says, who can help me fix this terrible predicament that apparently somebody has gotten me into? It can't be me. I've done nothing wrong. They say, well, Haman's here. Now, why is Haman there? Well, Haman says, I can't sleep. Mordecai's got to die. We've been building this gallows, and it is the best gallows anybody's ever built. It's 75 feet tall. They said it was too tall, and it couldn't happen, but it did. And so he's there, and, he, and the king looks down and says, who's in, the, who's in the, the, the palace? Who's waiting for me? And they spy on They say, Haman's out there. So the king's in his bedroom in his jammies, and he says, bring him in here. And he turns to Haman, and he says, Haman, let me ask you a question. Say somebody did something incredibly amazing for the king, and the king delights to honor him. I mean, the king just wants to make his life amazing. What should we do for this person? And Haman is like middle school, junior high girl giddy. I don't know, I don't know. It's the greatest question I've ever been asked. I'm just saying, someone needs to be honored. Big guy, I mean King Ahasuerus. I know you don't like it when I call you that. So if we want to honor this guy, this is what we need to do. This is what we should do to the one uh, that wants to be honored. And this is what the text tells us. It says, Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So the king said, for the man the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. Not just something off the shelf, something that you had on. And the horse the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes of the horse be handed over to the king's... Uh, most noble officials and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead on the horse through the square of the city proclaiming before him thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor so Haman's just sitting there dressing himself in all the king's clothes which isn't a little bit creepy and so he's describing all these things that should be done this is what we need to do What's something you've worn recently? Yeah, yeah, we should put that on the one that you want to honor. And, and, and where's your horse recently? We should put that on, on the one that you want to honor. And, 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 and who's the highest official? Not me, because I'm going to be busy, of course. And so what we need to do is have him 
walk before the horse, point up at me and says, this is what happens when the king wants to honor somebody. Somebody, right? The king hears it. This guy's never heard a bad idea. He's never heard an idea that he didn't want to respond to. And so the king says, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the clothes, take the horse if you have said. And Haman's like, I'm putting on the jacket, I'm grabbing the horse. And he says, and take it and do it to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. All the sputtering and stammering and stopping and stripping off that robe and saying, what? But I was totally going to ask you to impale him. The king says, leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai. The height of offense, right? So he goes out there and Mordecai still likely has on sackcloth and ashes. And so he's out there, he's dusting off his head. He's helping him take off the sackcloth. He's outfitting him with the robes. And then he's still going to walk through the whole city. And everybody that sees him says, Haman's so incredibly important. I wonder how much more important this guy is. Everybody he sees and everywhere he goes, Haman cries out, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman is so incredibly dejected. He puts the horse up. He returns the robes. Mordecai runs back to the king's gate. And Haman goes home to his wife and his friends who are now called wise advisors. And he begins to tell them how awful things are now. Now these are people who have celebrated him, who have heard his story and cheered for him, who, who suckered him in, talked him into spending all night building these gallows and, and all these various things. But listen to what they say in the end of verse 13. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. His idol's being destroyed. His wife and wise men cleverly tell him, wisely tell him, this is only the beginning of the end for you. God is affecting and working a reversal of fortunes for Haman and Mordecai. Where Mordecai started low and he was temporarily exalted and placed upon the horse. Where Haman started high and man, he is sliding down. And in the midst of this discussion, in the midst of perhaps trying to cheer him, and say, say, cheer him up and say, buddy, it's not so bad. Or, yeah, it really is that bad, but maybe it'll happen quickly. The eunuchs show up and they take Haman along with them to this feast. Now for all Haman knows, this feast is going to be a pleasurable break from the misery of his life that it currently is, right? So he goes in there to the feast and he knows he can't frown or be down in the mouth around the king, so he's putting on his best smile, he's putting his best foot forward, and he goes there and there, and the, and the king asks Esther again. Verse 2, he says, what is your wish, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted to you, what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. This is the third time he's asked her, and now she's ready to respond. Queen Esther knows that he has to give her what she's going to ask for. And so she responds, if I found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king, listen to this, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. She says, you told me I got a wish and I got a request. I need two things. I need my life to be saved, and I need the life of my people saved. Now, the king doesn't even understand that her life is imperiled. He doesn't even understand that the life of any people are imperiled because he only lives for me, myself, and I. 
She goes on and she says, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now she's quoting the exact line from the decree that went out. Now who did the decree go out from? It went out from the king and it went out from Haman. And so in essence, when she's quoting this line somewhere in the dark recesses of his drunken stupor at the previous decree, he should know, that sounds like something super catchy that somebody close to me might have said. To be killed, to be destroyed, to be annihilated. But she knows this king. And she knows this king isn't primarily motivated by the plight of what's going to happen to the people around him, but he's primarily motivated by his own selfish interests. So look at the caveat she gives him. If we had been sold merely as slaves, if all of my people, if me, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. Why? For our affliction is not be, to be compared with the loss to the king. If we were merely going to be sold into slavery, that would have really been a bummer for us. But we just wouldn't want to ruin your day. So we wouldn't have even brought that up. But because it's a little bit more intense than that, because we're going to be killed, we're going to be destroyed, we're going to be annihilated, we're bringing it before you. The king responds in quick succession. He says, who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? There's no question, the king is angry. He is furious. Now, cleverly, he's casting the blame on somebody else, right? He knows that she's not going to be like, he sounds a lot like you, he looks a lot like you, and he talks a lot like you. Who is he, where is he, who is dared? So she responds, a foe and an enemy. Before she mentions his name, she mentions the fact that this guy is an enemy of the king, an enemy of the empire, and an enemy of all that is right and true. A foe and an enemy. And then she looks over and she points this wicked Haman to kill, to destroy, to annihilate this wicked Haman. Haman. Haman is, is, is understandably a little bit shook. The text tells us that he is terrified before the king and noticeably and the queen. The king hears this and, and the text tells us that he jumps up and he runs out to the garden. He's so incredibly angry. Now understandably in this as well, he's thinking, how do I rescue my honor? How do I rescue my honor? I feel a little bit complicit because I didn't stop Haman. How do I get myself out of this mess? And so he's out there, and he's frustrated, and he's venting. And all the while he's out there, Haman turns, and he runs over to the queen, and he falls at her feet, and he begins to plead, and he begins to beg, and he begins to say, is there anything you can do? He seems to be a little bit miffed. Can you stop what's going to happen to me? In the midst of him begging and laying there at the queen's feet, the king comes back into it. And he asks this question, he says, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Doom is spelled for Haman. And then one of the king's uh, servants spoke up and said, King, I couldn't help but notice as I was out on the balcony earlier, I saw this ostentatious gallows that were made. A full 30 feet higher than your palace. It's so incredibly convenient. He stayed up all night making it to kill Mordecai. You remember Mordecai, the one you just learned tried to save you? He was going to kill him. This would be funny. Let's put him on that pole. And the king says, this is great. Let's do it. And so they take Haman out to this 
uh, impaling pole that is 50 cubits high. And the king says, hang him on it. So they hung Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. Oh, that was a busy dinner party. You know, remarkably, our God is continually working for this terrific reversal. And so you remember Haman was fabulously wealthy. So this is what the king does. He goes to Esther and he says, I'm going to give to you the entire house of Haman. All of his wealth, all of his property, all of his prestige to do with whatever you want. And so Esther says, I know what I should do. Let me introduce you to my uncle Mordecai, the guy who saved you. And so he says, this is Mordecai? So he takes the signet ring off of Haman's hand and he gives it to Mordecai and he says, you will rise. And so he places Mordecai in the same role that Haman had just been in. As this story began, we saw that the Jews were headed towards death with, with no sense of justice for them in sight. And Haman was cruising around and was headed for ascendancy and was only second underneath the king. But in God's providence, he brought Haman all the way from being the second highest position in the kingdom all the way down to the lowest possible thing today. And he brought those people who were all the way powerless and destined for death and he equipped them with terrific power and he raised Mordecai all the way up to be the second person in charge of the kingdom. Our God is a king of great reversal. Our God is constantly at work doing great reversal. The reversal within this picture is a microcosm of the picture that our God has affected over the entire cosmos. You see, when God created all of humanity, he created it in the garden perfect and sinless. But humanity rebelled against God. They sought to have something that God said was off limits, so they rebelled against God, and sin entered into humanity, and through sin, death. And so God had to do something to affect the terrific reversal that we had brought upon ourselves, that you and I in kind follow in every time we engage in sin, apart from the grace and mercy of our God. And so God set about to bring about this terrific reversal through sending his Son, Taking his son who was at the right hand of God on high, who dwelt in perfect majesty, who dwelt in perfect harmony with the Trinity, who brought him down low, who had him to be born in poverty, to enter through a difficult life, and then at the end of his life to be put to death at the hand of his creation. Although he started high, he became low. And although he was brought down low, what we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God has made Jesus to be sin him who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was put to death for our sins, but God raised him back to life, making him victorious over sin and death. God has affected and brought about this terrific reversal for all of the cosmos. But there's more. God extends the possibility of, of, of the destiny of your life being caught up in this same cosmic reversal. God extends the possibility that you too would experience this reversal because it's not some mere abstraction that there was a man and a woman living in a garden who were far off from God, but we recognize that you and I both were far off from God. Paul describes it in Ephesians 2 and he says that we are all spiritually dead, that we have sinned against a God that we didn't even know. 
that we violated a God's law that we didn't even care for. But in grace and mercy, this God came close to us. And he extends to us, to me and to you, he extends to us the right, the freedom, the option, the opportunity to respond to his forgiveness. And then through the work of Christ, uh, through Christ's work on the cross, he makes us to come alive. Today, the great reversal stands at a crossroad for many of us in our lives. And God asks that you would respond to the gracious invitation to believe in the Son of God who came, who suffered and died, who took on sin and then was made alive by God and calls us to have faith in him. And there are those of us who have placed our faith in God. And you would say that you are a follower of Jesus today. God has set you on this path of great reversal. We recognize that the end of our lives do not necessarily look like financial riches. They do not necessarily look like fame and adoration by those around us. They do not necessarily look like even recognition by anyone outside of our family. The great reversal he has set you on is, is headed towards a recreated heaven and a recreated, recreated earth living forever in all eternity with him. And that's enough. That's what he has for us. This is the good future for us. It is unassailed by sickness. It is untarnished by tragedy. It is unended by our death. This is our future. This is how we find him. This is our great reversal. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you give us In this account of Esther, a picture of this great reversal that you've accounted for these characters, for these men and women. But God, as well, that you have effected a great reversal for us in Christ Jesus. And Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to your son Jesus, that they would do so today, that they would respond to your gospel asking to be forgiven of their sins. And Father, I pray for those of us who are tempted to set our hope on something other than you. God, that we would live sanctified lives close to you in the midst of recognizing that you have already brought about the turning point of our stories in as much as we are aligned with Christ. God, I pray that we would find encouragement in you and in that throughout the difficulties of this life. We submit all these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.